You are listening to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. We are a group of students at the University of North Texas Health Science Center who are passionate about mental health issues and fighting stigmas. The aim of this podcast is to educate our listeners on mental health and tell our experiences with honesty. We encourage you to consider only what feels best to you and to consult with your medical professional and or support team before doing anything that might jeopardize your physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental health. Some episodes may trigger an adverse reaction. If an episode is beginning to upset you, I advise that you please pause immediately and talk to your support team. With that being said, welcome to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. Let's dive in. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Matt Joseph, a medical scientist student at the University of North Texas. And I'm Kristen Kluber, a first year at TCOM. And hello. Are you a new person here? <laughs> I, I am. I am actually a part of the podcast team. I usually work in promotion and advertising, but it's my first episode. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. Well, for your first episode, we're going to be talking about a pretty serious topic, as we understand. It's actually the concept of depression. And understandably, this has a lot of intricacies and details and uh, can come up with a couple personal stories that will be brought up this episode that we want to reiterate can be triggering to some people. And we'll do our best to keep this as structured as possible, given the kind of global nature of the condition. And we'll be mentioning very specific details and facts, as well as mentioning beforehand what the con- the topic of conversation will be. So we'll just mention ahead of time if we're talking about statistics or a personal story that will be brought up to make sure that uh, if anything is brought up that might be triggering in nature, that you would know ahead of time in advance. And also, if we can put it, we'll, it'll have timestamps for what those sections are. We will also preface that we, we will be providing some resources ahead of time that if there is anything that might be an issue to you in this immediate moment, to please could reach out to them and to whatever your immediate care providers are and just whenever you get the chance. Yeah, so some of the resources that we would like to mention in case things are really triggering for you, of course, if you need someone to talk to or you're feeling suicidal, Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free. You can call at 1-800-273-8255. Also, here on UNT's campus, we have a care team. They're with the Office of Care and Civility, which you can find on the UNT HSC website if you want to make an appointment. They also have an on-call care team phone line. The number is 817-735-2740. Like Matt said, if you are feeling very triggered, please pause the episode and call your primary health care provider or your support team on our campus. Just to mention, we do have a support group that's put on by a group of people here at UNT. It's on Wednesdays. We can put some information out if you guys are interested in attending a support group session. Okay, so the, we're going to be starting off this episode with first some basics about what depression is. So to start with depression basics, we ask the question, what exactly is depression? What is the difference between being depressed and being sad and how everyone's health looks different? Would you like to explain? Sure. So uh, there are different kinds of depression, but clinically it's called clinical depression or a depressive disorder. It's a mood disorder that causes distressing symptoms that affect how you feel, think, and handle daily activities such as sleeping, eating, and working. To be diagnosed with depression, symptoms must be present most of the day, nearly every day, for at least two weeks. 
the DSM-5 outlines the following criteria to make a diagnosis of depression. The individual must be experiencing five or more symptoms during the same two-week period, and at least one of the symptoms should be either one, a depressed mood, or two, a loss of interest or pleasure. So first, a depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day is involved. Two, a markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day or nearly every day. Three, a significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. And four, a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement that's notable by others, not just by the subjective feelings or restlessness or being slowed down. Five, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Six, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Seven, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. And eight, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicidal attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. To receive a diagnosis of depression, these symptoms must cause the individual clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. The symptoms must also not be a result of substance abuse or another medical condition. So the reason why I wanted to come onto this podcast and talk during this episode was I've kind of experienced depression, especially since starting medical school, and I wanted to talk about it so that our listeners might find it relatable and might get the help they need if they need to. So I guess I'll just get into it. Go off, sis. (laughs) So I moved to Fort Worth from Oklahoma to start medical school this year, which was really exciting and scary at the same time. So I didn't really have a good social support system here, obviously, because I was new to the area. And then we started school in our first classes, cellular and molecular biology, which is just super intense and a really hard class to begin with. Especially after moving. Yeah, especially after moving. And so that first weekend after starting, my grandfather passed away which was really difficult to cope with. I was really close with him. He was the only person in my family who had ever considered medicine as a career. So medicine was something that we really bonded over. And him passing away, I couldn't, because I was in school, I couldn't attend anything like his funerals. I couldn't be there for my grandma or my family or anything. So that was just really hard to cope with myself. And then not having a social support system in this new city. I was just trying to put on a happy face all the time and just trying to be a happy person, which I was definitely not at the time. (laughs) So I was dealing with that and just not really taking care of myself. And I ended up failing our first class, CMB, which, you know, if you haven't listened to our failure episode, go take a listen. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that was definitely tough because I never failed a course in anything ever. So having failed my first class in medical school was really difficult. So with all that going on, I also had some health issues that came up out of nowhere. And so I was having to deal with all that, having to go through procedures, just a really tough semester. I was not handling things very well on my own. I ended up, you know, staying in bed. It was hard to get out of bed. I didn't find any interest in the things I was doing. Like, I love working out and I would go to the gym and just really not enjoy myself at all. So I lost interest in the things that I normally love to do. Lost them gains. (laughs) Yeah, I did lose gains as well, which was even more rough. Tragic. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was also just laying in bed a lot, drinking beer more than I probably, more than I should have been, just not taking care of myself whatsoever. 
I did end up speaking to a therapist from the care team, but with our crazy schedules, it just wasn't something I was able to keep up with. And I didn't connect super well with the therapist that I had, so that wasn't something that I continued doing. But after a number of months of realizing that I was not okay, I decided to get help that I needed and did find a PCP in the area and went and talked to her about the things I'd been experiencing. And I am honestly super grateful now that I had, but it did take me a lot of energy and like back and forth to decide whether or not to get that kind of help. And so now I'm really glad that I did. And yeah, so that was my first semester of med school. Yay! (laughs) One semester down. (laughs) So fun. I mean, like, I know a lot of people who kind of have this idea that getting into med school might be an end goal, just getting in in the first place, and that it's just kind of smooth sailing from there. So it's kind of interesting to hear that, like, these are very relatable struggles that continue on and don't necessarily end once you get in. Yeah, and... I mean, a lot of us starting med school kind of just hope that life outside of med school stops or at least slows down for a little bit. (laughs) And that does not happen. And, you know, I was I didn't expect the outside world to stop, obviously, but I didn't think for it to pick up so much as it did. Just like with the grandfather dying and then the health stuff, I don't really have health problems. And so for that to come up out of nowhere, it was a lot to have to deal with with everything else it's not something that exactly changes and just still having to adjust to it right yeah exactly so there's just so many things that happen and life really just does not stop once you get into med school which med school is hard to begin with like it's not an easy path and then having to deal with everything else on top of it does not make it any easier either of course thank you very much for sharing the story though of course Well, we're going to be talking next up a little bit more about classifying depression specifically. And to start the incidence of depression in medical school, we want to talk a little bit about including in residency or in practice and associated factors. About a quarter of medical students report signs of depression, according to a 2016 JAMA study. The number is at least twice as high as the reported incidences of depression among the general population. So it's no, it's well known that medical students have this higher reported rate of depression. And there's also additional research that's being published that nearly 4,000 students attending 49 medical schools, there was influence on depression among future doctors as well. And there were other factors to also consider when looking at this. For example, age. This, there was a, this study showed that there was an increased risk of depression symptoms among fourth-year medical students, 24 or older, with 34% of respondents over 24 showing symptoms of depression. That number is four percentage points higher than among students younger than 24. This risk occurs despite matriculating medical students entering medical school with a lower prevalence of depressive symptoms than similarly aged college graduates who pursued other careers, as mentioned by the doctor involved, Dr. Dyerby. But it's interesting that it's people who originally came in that had a lower prevalence of depression symptoms originally, and it was medical school that brought it up, which is Sounding exactly like it came up for you. Yeah, this is really relatable. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I definitely think that med school kind of brings stuff out of you. And yeah, you might experience things that you've never experienced before. And yeah. (laughs) So also, since age is a factor, ethnicity can also be a factor 
according to a study, respondents of the study who were not Hispanic were less likely to be experiencing depression symptoms at about 26% than those who were Hispanic at 31%. Tuition is another factor. Um, between medical school class size, tuition, research intensity of the medical school, and average medical college's admission test score of matriculating medical students, only tuition was independently related to students' risk of depression at the end of medical school. Students attending schools near national average more likely are more likely to experience symptoms of depression compared to their peers at school with lower tuition than the national average. Finances play such a big role. I mean, for some people... Who would have thought <laughs> finance can be a problem? I know. Medical school is not cheap by any means, so having to take out loans... And whenever you're kind of looking at how many zeros are in your debt. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a punch in the gut. I feel like it's a lot to deal with. People joke about it a lot, but that's really stressful to have, especially with current systems of like not necessarily being able to work off your uh, tuition debt as fast as you could in the past. There was like student loan forgiveness programs that may or may not be available in the upcoming future. Who knows? Yeah, it's... (laughs) And finances are always difficult and a cause of stress and anxiety. So having this much debt, especially after having to go through everything that we go through school-wise, is just a compounding factor. And another subject that was brought up and very near and dear to our hearts is stress. (laughs) Students reported high levels of stress during the first year and increased odds of experiencing depressive symptoms by 49% during their fourth year 49 percent oh my gosh that's such a big number (laughs) (laughs) and social support is also a factor that those with lower scores for social support measures during their first year 44 percent were more likely to show signs of depression in the fourth year those with higher scores had 26 percent likelihood it's like having social supports actually has an impact on your ability to do well. Yeah, it might help you out, I guess. Maybe. And speaking of which, coping, relying on negative coping skills rather than social coping or positive coping, 61% were more likely to experience signs of depression by their fourth year. Oh. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> this is so kind of... Welcome eye-opening. to year one. <laughs> I know. Like, part of me is just kind of thinking like, oh... It's only going to get worse from here. <laughs> Great. Nah. I mean, isn't a big part of it also recognizing that you had the negative ones in the first place and you're making a lot of positive growth for yourself, which you are. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. Next section is having a little bit of real talk on that note of depression and suicide risk amongst physicians and medical students, dentists, nurses, and everyone in between. Viewer discretion advised, of course. Yeah, so... We don't have all the data, and sometimes the data that we do have isn't accurate, especially for professions outside of medicine and medical school, which we'll kind of talk about as well. Two in five physicians screen positive for depression and mental health issues, and burnout and other stressors are prominent across the continuum of physician education and practice. Medical students are three times likelier to die of suicide than their counterparts in the general population. Oh, God. And this is all according to data cited in an AMA Council on Medical Education report presented at the 2019 AMA annual meeting. Honestly, it's interesting to know how, like, people kind of assume that you're going to be doing well in medical school. So wouldn't that kind of compound on the stressors involved? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know y'all touched on this in a previous episode (laughs) but all the outside 
even just like family that expects you to be doing very well and you always want to try to look your best in front of people or for people so just all those expectations that people have on you and that you Great want to be yeah <laughs> and those you're just trying to portray that you're doing fine is just yeah it's a lot it's a lot <laughs> yeah and well there there's the numbers <laughs> Uh, recent review and meta-analysis reported that the summary estimate of the prevalence of depression or depressive symptoms among medical students was 27.2% and that suicide ideation was 11.1% according to the Rothstein et al. in 2016. Only 15.7% of depressed medical students sought psychiatric treatment. 15.7%. That is nothing. That is nothing. According to the same Rothstein study and Putherin et al. from 2016. This was reported similar rates for depression, about 28%, and a proportion of treatment-seeking depressed students was 12.9%, but at a lower mean frequency of suicide ideation at 5.8%. Another study identified, as we mentioned earlier, older students and those of lower socioeconomic status as the main target of suicide intervention programs and depression counseling. Interesting. That was by a fan et al. 2012 study. <laughs> I'm kind of speechless right now that... Those numbers are crazy. They're wild. I mean, we know mental health, like we learn about being healthy, but then people not taking the measures that they need to to seek out help. It's just so mind blowing. It's also interesting how the programs apparently exist for age groups and the demographics that are known to have higher risk factors, but the numbers are still this high after a 2012 study. So, yeah, hmm. <laughs> man, I don't know. So like I kind of mentioned earlier, data doesn't exist for a lot of other fields. So stress related suicide by dentists and other healthcare workers. We've heard that these fields have higher statistics, but there really aren't any papers out there confirming this or not. So this kind of this makes me want to say, like, if anybody is interested in research, especially mental health research, maybe take a look into other fields. Yeah, other than just medicine, because they're out there. In the first national investigation of nurse suicides in more than 20 years, researchers found significantly higher rates of suicide among both women and men working in nursing when compared with non-nurses. The incidence was 11.97 per 100,000 person years among female nurses and 39.8 per 100,000 among male nurses, both of which were significantly higher compared to women and men in the general population, which for the norm is 7.58 and 28. Two respectively per 100,000 person years. And this was reported in a study by the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Wow. That's insane. I did not realize that at all. Well, if that's any indication for a call to action for more research on this and maybe, you know, actually do something about it, that would be nice. Yeah, no kidding. Like, I'm speechless. I'm kind of mind blown right now. These numbers are so much higher than I expected them to be. And the fact that our society has such a stigma against mental health and not helping people or people not getting the help they need like this could be potentially preventable or at least very preventable yeah or at least like our numbers could be lower i guess but wow i mean it's just really wild to me and almost gets me upset about the fact that the numbers that come out even on initial observation have all the signs of there being 
serious disconnect in care for these populations. And it's the ones providing, helping with provide that care. So it's just weird to me to think that there's not being more put in to really help the other parts of our care team yeah. <laughs> as effectively. And it's mentioned also for graduate students in general or dental hygienists who are also important parts of the care team. And where these sources are coming from, even if there may be common factors, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the same with the hygienist versus the doctor, you know, or the dentist themselves. And the dentists themselves already have a very high rate. Yeah. So, I don't know. Just frustrating to not see that there could be benefit done there. Yeah, I agree. But anyway, (laughs) the next portion we'll be talking about is the workstation portion where we'll have tools for your tool belt of a sort and wanting to work with depression in general and just having a conversation about it also. Yeah, so we want to help our listeners recognize maybe suicidal thoughts and tendencies or depression in themselves and in those around them. Some people might think it's easy to identify symptoms within someone But really, a lot of these symptoms can go unnoticed pretty easily. So one of the first symptoms to recognizing people that might have suicidal thoughts and tendencies are extreme mood swings. If someone feels extremely happy and emotionally high one day and then completely depleted the next day, that could be a very immediate... Good indicator. (laughs) Yeah, a very good indicator of someone who's going through something. Also, and it's a thing that I feel like is pretty common, talking about death, some people kind of fixate on the idea of suicide and say it's troublesome things like, I wish I hadn't been born, or everyone would be happier if I wasn't around. And even if it's kind of said as a joke, which honestly, hear it all the time, sometimes I'm guilty of it. Yeah. But it's also a matter of, one, mention, seeing if it's something new that hasn't been brought up as consistently and it's suddenly getting brought up. And also just like more self-consciousness about it. I'm trying to be that way too. I'm trying to be better about it myself. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> it's kind of a phrase that gets thrown around or like, oh my gosh, if this doesn't happen, God, like I just want to die. Yeah, it's something it's a phrase that people kind of just toss around and don't really think about it, but if you just hear someone using a phrase more and more often like that or more seriously, it normalizes it when it becomes a problem. Yeah, like it yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Another symptom could be self-destructive behavior. When someone voices their life has little value and then engages in harmful behavior like drunk driving or taking part in unsafe activities, that can be another indicator. Does it have to be that bad? No. Um, I think that there's a scale of activities. Like self-destructive behavior doesn't mean like, you know rock climbing without a harness it could just be something like maybe not taking care of yourself like if you're drinking too much or I don't know if you decide to participate in self-harm things that are general risky activities increases. exactly so if you find yourself constantly thinking about what it would be like to die or planning how you would end your own life you're starting to bring to fruition more than just talking about death in general uh, it's actually pretty serious if someone has a plan they're in a crisis and they actually have some sort of idea of like i'm this is how i would do it that actually is pretty serious and serious consideration would be needed to go to the nearest emergency room or call the suicide hotline at the very least acknowledge that it is serious yeah. And it's not to be taken lightly that you're actually thinking about how to do it, you know? Yeah, this is something that needs an immediate plan 
of action to prevent something from actually following through. It's a very slippery slope from that point. Yeah. Lastly, saying goodbyes. Even if indirectly, individuals who say they might be going away or who may try to say goodbyes could be having suicidal thoughts. And this is not just like a, I'm going on vacation, okay, bye. It's like a serious goodbye. Like it might sound, they might not say the exact words goodbye, but they could be. If I don't see you again. Yeah, comments like that could be a really good indicator that they might be suicidal. Seek professional help when needed. Yeah, honestly. um, Talk to your PCP if you don't have a therapist. They are trained to help in situations like this. Or if you do have a therapist, talk to them. If you don't, like I mentioned earlier, our care team on UNTHSC does have an on-call therapist phone number. So call them if you need to. There are resources available, and they're always publicly available. If they, if you can't think of the using them in emergencies, just know that, yes, you can reach out to your support structures, but know that these professional resources are available for you. So let's talk about coping. <laughs> <laughs> let's. Amazing. Don't try, as we, meant, as we were implying, don't try to manage suicidal thoughts or behavior on your own. You will likely need professional help and support to overcome the problems linked to suicidal thinking. Depression is a very complex issue, and it is worth bringing up to somebody a professional in working through it. Yeah, your doctor, a mental health provider, can help you identify coping strategies tailored to your specific situation. So consider discussing your coping strategies with the people who know you well, such as family members, trusted friends, and your doctor. Part of the reason it can be a little bit risky with fr- with specifically friends or family at this point would be that you may be advised to do things you don't feel like doing, like talking with friends when you'd rather stay in your bedroom all day. It'll be easier to do things as they become habits. Or you might be recommended to do things that may not be the healthiest for you at the time. While it's important to want to reach out, getting that professional help sooner can be of benefit. Yeah, and also talking to friends and family you might feel judged as well. So it could just add to your stresses and your depression. So we, I can't stress enough, go talk to a health professional whenever you are having symptoms and problems. They're available, they're free, and, and they are going to help in these circumstances the most, even if you feel like you don't want to reach out. It's, it'll help with those feelings of burdening the people that you care about, you know? And they, they know how to handle it. They know how to help you probably better than your friends and family do, which, you know, we're not discouraging talking to friends and family, but definitely encouraging you to talk to your doctor or mental health provider. So let's talk negative coping skills. Yeah, let's get into that. <laughs> so negative coping skills include activities that can feel good in the moment, but leave people feeling worse later on and can potentially be dangerous as well. So a few to mention are consumption of drugs or alcohol to try and feel better by avoiding unpleasant thoughts, avoiding people, risky behaviors like I mentioned earlier, binge eating or overeating or not eating enough, oversleeping or insomnia, and procrastination. Lots and lots of procrastination. Why are some of those negative coping mechanisms is something interesting to me. I mean, like, okay, in like a 
they are bound to have, you know that they're going to have longer term consequences that are only going to make it worse, for example. But at the same time, they feel good in the moment, right? So it's like uh, unprotected sex, for example. It can lead to an STD if done on a consistent basis. And at a point of just like, it's something else that is brought up as a consistent coping mechanism for people that can have very not long-term consequences in some cases. Yeah. Very similarly to some of these. So just acknowledging that, like, what is the scaling of what would be a negative coping skill? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, like, different for everybody. So here are just some... Positives. Yeah. Let's talk about those. (laughs) (laughs) So examples would be trying to be a little bit more mindful, general meditation and things like that, exercise, keep having proper nutrition, making sure to get better sleep positive social coping skills such as being supportive or getting support talking about a stressful event with a supportive person can be an effective way to manage stress seeking external support instead of self-isolating and internalizing the effects of stress can help really reduce the negative effects of a difficult situation i think that you've had a history of having had to work with some of these but you noted that for example exercise stopped being as helpful for you could you kind of help explain it if that did come back as a positive coping skill for you? Yeah, it is now like after I got the help that I needed and have talked to people about what all I was going through, I now love exercising again like I did before. I also proper nutrition. I used to meal prep a lot and I recognized like when I was not doing well that I would stop meal prepping. It was just easier to make some crappy food or like go pick up food that wasn't as good for me and so now taco bell yeah exactly you know i love in and out burger um and there's one on my way to school every day which is literally one like walking distance yeah i know so now that i'm doing better i do love exercising again i just feel so accomplished when i do it whereas before i was feeling very bummed out when I was exercising, I would be questioning why I was doing it and what the point was. Whereas now I'm, you know, excited to go work out and yeah, just feel really good about it. So something you mentioned earlier when we were just having a conversation was you were trying to be more positive in general in very negative situations. And I thought that was interesting in a way of being more mindful about it. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So I try to be a positive person negative thoughts and things are not helpful. So I try to find positives and things. And so something that we were talking about earlier was how coming to the library was really difficult. And I stressful. Yeah, very stressful. And it wasn't, I kind of stopped, I started studying at the library at the beginning of the year because it's kind of a social place and meeting friends and all that. But I definitely stopped coming throughout my first semester because it's just such a negative environment. It's obviously stressful. We're going through a lot, but then talking to people I feel like they want to just bring out the worst in their lives or they just like to talk about all the things that they're angry about or that's stressing them out and it's just a very it could be a very negative place to be around just a feedback of negative to negatives yeah and I was already having a ton of negative thoughts in my mind outside of the library so coming to the library just made it so much worse so I've kind of tried to when I am here and if there are a lot of people being negative, I try to be the positive person in our group. I try to look for the best things. Like we had a test just the other day. That was yesterday. We had a test yesterday. <laughs> Great time. Yeah. And it was our last test before spring break. And so Ooh. 
yeah, I was just trying to be excited. Like, yeah, we have a test, but then we're free. Like we get a week off of school, like something to be excited about, something to look forward to after a test. And I just try to bring out these happy little, even if it's a little thing, like it's Friday, you know, just little things that could bring some positivity to the group or if there were people who were being way too negative around me, I would kind of just have them stop for a second and tell me one positive thing about their day just so we could all try and keep a positive mindset. Cheesy but effective. (laughs) Yeah, it's super cheesy, but, you know, it's so hard to just be constantly bombarded with these negative thoughts and ideas, and, you know, everyone just needs a little bit of positivity. Honestly, it's pretty nice to hear somebody saying that because I feel like when having those conversations about the negatives on something, it almost consolidates the negative thought as, you know, validated in a way. So you feel justified in having that negative thought stuck in your head because, oh, yeah, it's definitely something worth keeping this whole problematic mentality that I have because other people are feeling that negative feeling, you know? Yeah, I feel like these negative thoughts and comments that everyone keeps saying, like, while we're at the library or something, just kind of build on top of each other and everybody kind of just feeds off of it to become even more negative. Yeah, that sucks. Let's move on. Yeah, (laughs) just tell me one good thing, please. (laughs) So we'd also want to talk a little bit more about for those looking outside or from the outside looking in, how can you help or what can you do when someone tells you that they plan to commit suicide? So important things to look for are, or to keep in mind are the language when navigating situations like this. Some people may not understand what depression feels like, so it's important to be present in a supportive role focused on the person who's feeling depressed. And so for example, considering language, not saying they're depressed versus saying they have depression and not classifying what that person might be facing. So that, that could look like not wanting to say that this individual is having a, a circumstance the same as your own when it's really likely an indiv- it's, it's, it's an individual experience, but that there are ways that you can be empathetic without kind of taking it back as something like, oh, I felt this, so I'm going to kind of resonate with it, which can be problematic to feedback one's own experience back to another's. I mean, I've had a similar situation to that where I was honest to people about a case where I had a pretty traumatic experience. And as a result of it, a lot of people started coming to me and wanting to relate with those experiences. And it only felt more like I was kind of feedbacking on it and that it was building. Yeah, you're like not only dealing with your own things, but then they're starting to burden you with all their things and it just piles on. You don't want to see it as a burden, but also like if you phrase it the wrong way, it can really come off as if you're adding your burdens to somebody else. Yeah, and something about the difference between saying that they're depressed and they have depression, it's just it's not labeling them by their problems. It's just kind of like using a description of something that they have rather than labeling them as depressed as their illness as their issues I guess personally I so whenever I failed CMB I had to attend a student's performance committee which is where you sit in front of a group of really important people and talk about what happened and why you failed that class that sounds fun (laughs) <laughs> it was super fun. Um, and so one thing, I was obviously telling them the same story that I shared with you guys. 
but this was before my health problems. I was mainly just, you know, moving to a new city, not having that social support system yet, my grandfather passing away. So I started saying like, oh, I, I'm depressed. I now have testing anxiety and this kind of stuff and performance anxiety. And one of the doctors in my committee made a statement about you have these things. These are things that are happening to you, but don't define yourself by these words such as being depressed or being anxious. Like these are just circumstantial things that you're dealing with as opposed, he like made me realize like just that little change in the way that you say things can really have a big impact because I no longer define myself as depressed or anxious or things like that. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Another thing for you to do if you're someone outside looking into the situation is start by asking questions. Be direct. If you think that someone is suicidal, just ask them because you're not going to put that idea in their mind if they aren't suicidal. You're, if you ask someone if they're suicidal, you're not going to give them idea, the idea to become suicidal just by asking them. So just be direct in your questions. Also, look for the warning signs that we mentioned earlier. And please, please do not say, everything is going to be okay. Or, I understand. Because this kind of just devalues their experience, or it's you making light of it. And it might not be what you're trying to do. It's patronizing. It's very patronizing. Everything to that person does not feel like it's going to be okay. And, like, you also can't understand their situation Unless, like, even if you've been through something similar, you don't understand what they are going through in that moment. So it might be you trying to relate to them or seem, like, relatable, but it's not how it comes off. So just don't say the words, I understand. Instead, say things like, I can see why this would be difficult for you, or I can see where this is coming from. Just try to stay impartial when you're talking to someone acknowledging all of that just along with the resources that we provided in the beginning for immediate help if someone has attempted suicide don't leave the person alone and while you're there call 911 or your local emergency number right away or if you think that you can do so safely move the person to the nearest emergency room yourself this circumstantially depending on the method may not be possible and you should not attempt any medical help on your own if you feel like you are not capable of doing so or you can't move them safely Try to find out if he or she is under the influence of alcohol or drugs or may have taken an overdose, which is a doubly a case of why you should call 911 immediately if you have found them in a circumstance that you think would be beyond your ability to, to provide care. And tell a family member or friend right away what's going on after you've made sure that you have told the proper medical facilities where to contact them and how to get them to the proper emergency care as soon as possible. And having more people there to be of support after the circumstance that has happened can be very important to the recovery process afterwards because it's going to be incredibly traumatic. Yeah, you don't want to be the only person there taking care of this other person because you need to take care of yourself as well as the person you're trying to help. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, which I feel like that's something hard. That's something that's hard for us to do as people going into a health professional field. Taking that all on yourself. Yeah, we always want to help other people. That's kind of what we do and what we strive to do. You kind of forget about helping yourself. And we sometimes find it selfish to take care of yourself. But don't. Make sure that you take care of yourself while you're taking care of other people as well. Absolutely.
Like we have stated before, it's important to report this to a health professional who's trained to handle situations like this. Again, get help from a trained professional as quickly as possible because the person that you're trying to help might need to be hospitalized until the suicidal crisis has passed. And we encourage the person to call a suicide hotline number. And like we mentioned before, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at 800-273-TALK or 8255. They'll connect you with a trained counselor. And lastly, take all signs of suicidal behavior seriously. So in general, of being supportive to somebody who you might believe to be suicidal, is it okay to check in on them from time to time is a question that you can legitimately ask them. You can help somebody while honoring their own autonomy because this is a, something that they're going through individually. Wanting to kind of barge in and say, I'm going to do this for you may not necessarily, depending on what their condition is, be what's the best for them. And honoring that autonomy of theirs, depending on their circumstances, can be more important to them in the, in the process of their recovery. Some things that also to not say, asking how are you doing, depending on the time frame that you're asking, you're committing to want to listen to them, or if especially if there's somebody who's having the, that ideation or potential for ideation, you really want to hit on getting the full details of what they're going to be talking about. If you're asking that to just be cordial, it might be important to kind of emphasize this is just a what's up. <laughs> yeah. Like if you want to actually go with the mentality of wanting to hear with how they're doing, it's important to know that you're committing yourself to that time to do so, especially when as individuals where time is a premium, acknowledging do I actually have the time to be able to commit to the, getting all the details that I know that I need to get from this individual and what I need to listen to to really be of best benefit to them. Yeah, don't just ask someone how they're doing if you're not willing to sit and listen to how they're actually doing. Something to go back to what you said earlier about asking them if it's okay for you to check on them. A lot of times people who are having who are dealing with depression feel very powerless. So asking them if it's okay kind of gives them a sense of power for them to choose. You know, it gives them the option of whether you can talk to them or like whether you can check on them or not. So it kind of just gives them a sense of, not not power, I guess, but a sense of choice. They have um, some control over the circumstances go. at a time they feel like they have none. Yeah, so Makes choosing sense. your words wisely is important. And on that topic, we're going to talk about some false statements. And things to not say to anybody, I think, ever. <laughs> These are fun. Yeah, they're really great. So most commonly, people will say, snap out of it or try harder. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that is such an awful thing to say just to anybody, even someone who isn't depressed. Just don't tell someone to snap out of it or to try harder, which I do use that phrase sometimes as a joke to my friends. But... I hope they know that I'm joking most of the time because we laugh after we, I say it. So I hope that's fine. But don't seriously tell someone to try harder. Don't say to someone that, but you don't look depressed or it could be worse. Oh, God. Yeah, because to them, this is the worst. Don't tell them it could be worse. Or please don't tell somebody like you think you have it bad. Like, what? <laughs> like, why would you, why would somebody feel 
the need to say that to someone else, but I guess people do. When you're talking to a friend who is depressed or going through a difficult time, resist the temptation to compare pain. Remember that pain, both emotional and physical, is not only subjective, but relative. People don't always have a clear understanding of their reason for their depression either. So don't try to compare them to another situation. Oh my God, I ha- knew this person in my past who, when we used to study together, made it a point to joke with people about how, how if they messed up consistently, how would that reflect on you as a doctor? Ew. No. Yeah. <laughs> they said it as a joke, what? but it's like, what? Yeah, no. That, because that would really get to someone. That would really mess with them. That's That's not okay. No. No, it's not. Also, some things to not say. Yeah, we're not done yet with this list. Um, (laughs) Don't say you don't think about anyone but yourself. Don't make them feel selfish because just don't. Just don't do that. And don't classify someone as their illness. That's kind of what I was saying earlier in choosing your words. Maybe say that they have depression as opposed to they are depressed or someone is a user or someone has used drugs it just makes little tweaks in word choice makes quite a difference understand that people may not want your help despite you thinking that they may want it so respect the person that you're asking ask them if they want help kind of like what we mentioned earlier it's a slippery slope (laughs) it is a slippery slope because sometimes you think that someone's not okay and so you want to reach out to resources for them, but maybe they are not ready for it. They might be battling with that stigma on their own as the stigma of reaching out for health professionals. Well, that didn't make sense. Reaching out for professional help. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's like, it just might not be a comfort thing of wanting to admit that this is something that they're dealing with at all, which is its own problem in itself. Because even if they, if you know they have all the symptoms, they won't feel like they should or need feel the need to, you know? Yeah, they might not recognize those symptoms themselves. So just understand that maybe don't push things on somebody unless it is very dire, I feel like. Exactly. Another thing to consider for care providers specifically is physician mental health from patient situations. It's important for physicians' mental health to be kept up when dealing with patient suicides. And some of the other worst parts of the world that physicians are bound to deal with, it's important for education as a physician to do a better job of training and preparing for those realities in the medical schools. And we want to be able to provide that within this podcast in some sort of way to understand, to recognize these things as physicians as well. For sure. Physicians go through a lot of, you know, patients will pass away on the world. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They deal with a lot of dark and heavy things. And so just making sure that the physicians are the physician's personal mental health is kept up with is important in providing health and care for your patients. Lastly, we want to mention survivor guilt. We're not going to go too much into survivor guilt on this podcast because we will be releasing a PTSD episode soon ish. <laughs> so we'll talk more about it there. But we did want to recognize that this is something that people will go through and have to try to cope with 
So we what are we talking about next? We're gonna be talking about fighting stigma. I Ooh. mean, that's what this whole podcast is about, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, we're very big on fighting stigma. So <laughs> first of all, we want people to talk openly about their mental health and we recognize that this is something really hard to do. I personally did not talk openly at all about my mental health until this last semester really so we really want to encourage people to just be open about it it's yeah there is a lot of stigma surrounding it but we want people to feel comfortable and we're trying to break down those walls it's important to have a conversation about it and honestly like one of the other points is to educate yourself and others on mental health in general even if it's not as much as the specific details, just acknowledging that here's if, if you're ha- dealing with a condition yourself, knowing how to communicate with others to best address it if you if that's even something you're comfortable with talking about, or just being open about just having conversations about mental health as something that is common within certain populations. Like the fact that we talked earlier, we were bringing up some of the other healthcare providers that were dealing with these mental health conditions and were not getting any seeming like any care or effective yeah. care. That just seems absurd to me. And while it's important to just bring up, like, while talking about it, just in keeping it as an open topic seems like the bare basics, that's the point. (laughs) Exactly. Another way to fight stigma is to be conscious of your language, which is something we kind of harped on earlier. Again, what like what Matt said earlier is, like, don't ask someone how you're doing if you're not ready to listen to them or have a conversation about it. Maybe choose your words just a little differently, like, what's up? Or just hi Hi. in passing. Uh, Yeah, it's better to do that in passing if you don't have the time to sit and listen and talk about and have an open conversation about how they're actually feeling instead. Just passing by, how you feeling? Bye. Yeah, that's not very encouraging, especially if someone is feeling a lot and they want to talk about it. Exactly. Speaking of encouragement, encourage equality between mental and physical illness. Yeah, so your mental health can really affect how you're doing in your general activities. The same way a cold might. Who would have thought? I know, wild, right? And I feel like people are so much, I guess not really open about talking about their physical health, like specifics of it, but they're definitely more willing to say like, oh yeah, I have a physical health condition. And they're not as open to saying... I have crippling anxiety. (laughs) Exactly. So... These are, they're both illnesses. Like these are two things that are affecting your person. So we're trying to, we want people to be open to talk about mental and physical illnesses equally. And on that topic, the reason why we encourage this equality is because we want others to show compassion for people who do have mental illnesses. We may not always know the right thing to say, but sometimes just being present can mean the world of difference to someone who's suffering. So that equality between mental and physical health. We want people to show the same amount of compassion for someone who has mental health like they would with someone who has or mental health issues as someone who has physical health issues. And that goes into how you show that compassion is choosing empowerment over shame. You want to be able to deal with the stigma of mental health by wanting to promote empowerment of the individual who's dealing with something at the time. Because while it may not necessarily be immediately going to medicine, 
having a very empowerment a mentality toward it can mean a lot towards promoting their general mental well-being. And uh, as a quote by Val Fletcher, I fight stigma by choosing to live an empowered life. To me, that means owning my life and my story and refusing to allow others to dictate how I view myself or how I feel about myself and really promoting that mentality to other individuals who may not be feeling at a point that they can feel that way for themselves can mean the world a world of difference. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I kind of want to write it on my mirror. It's like every morning and every night before we're in a bed. Thanks, Belle Flusher. Yeah, you're the best. We also encourage being honest about treatment. And like we kind of mentioned earlier, among medical students who screened positive for depression, only 15.7 sought psychiatric or mental health treatment. It does take quite a few mental battles. I mean, I personally had to deal with some mental battles before deciding to getting the professional help that I needed. So just be honest with yourself. If you are seeing signs and symptoms of depression, to just be honest and open with yourself and recognizing that you should get some professional help. It's an interesting note that the media nowadays can itself be stigmatizing towards mental health. All right, let's talk about movies for a second. When's the last time you've seen somebody with like, uh, even in more modern movies, something who seemed to have depression or anxiety, and it kind of works itself out by the end of the movie or by the end of the season, or just kind of gets underplayed as something that's been brought up as a, as a character trait that could be a serious problem to somebody who actually is feeling that way and feels like it has to be something that's underplayed versus like an actual part of their identity oh for sure and i feel like in movies or shows and things someone who might have depression yeah like you said they just they get better like they're fine you know and they tend to do it without seeking professional help too which i won't get too much into that that's not how it works no it doesn't work like that at all so like just seeing that being portrayed so often on TV or movies is really frustrating to someone who might be going through that and is not seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, you know, who thinks that maybe they can get through it on their own without getting professional help because they, oh, that person in the show turned out fine without help. And so media is not being helpful once again. Also, you know, the general stigmatization of people who have like mental conditions and might be sensationalized on the news. Like you hear people with, uh, you know, that whole idea of like, oh, somebody with schizophrenia or something like that might be dangerous. That's highly untrue. Yeah. And they're more likely to be harmed themselves because they have that condition. And that's not played well at all. It almost makes them out to be dangerous and see and be seen as almost in a criminal element instead of for the treatment that they need to have and not harming people 99.9% of the time. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. <laughs> also, a way to fight stigma is to not harbor self-stigma, which is something that was talked about quite a bit in the failure episode, so go take a listen. It was great. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> of I'm course not, you do. I'm not biased. <laughs> so just don't harbor self-stigma. Like I said, if you have these self-stigmas, it might take you longer to reach out and get the professional help that you need. So just try your best to not harbor those feelings. So what we also want to look at are some challenges now that we're at the end of the episode for the listener, just briefly. So for example, 
have some positive affirmations. It's okay to be feeling upset about stuff if this is something that you're dealing with for yourself. It doesn't mean that you're less of a provider, less of a student, less of a person in general. Even something as small as, you know, putting a sticky note on your window or your on your mirror in the morning or to somebody else's can be a good way to show that you care. It doesn't have to be big. On that note, last year, a couple of times, like when I would leave to go to interviews, I lived with my cousin and if she left for work before me and so I didn't get to see her that morning, she would write me a lovely little note on an index card and place it right by my toothbrush. So the first, I know, it's like the first thing I saw the morning of my interview or something or before I left for my interview would be this lovely little note that she would write. Or like we had a small little dry erase marker board on our fridge and we would write each other little notes on there. So even if it's something little, it really does brighten someone's day. Um, it just shows that you care. It's not as big, but I try to make it a point to leave a little bit of a uh, good amount of extra coffee in the morning for my roommate who oh, always wakes up after sweet. me. <laughs> Man, maybe I should do that. It makes so much. It makes a world of difference. I love having coffee available for me in the morning. Yeah. So just like little, little notes, little things like leaving a bit of coffee can really go a long way. Like I think I've said, I feel like 20 times in this episode, try not to ask how you're feeling or ask someone how they're feeling without being ready to have a conversation. So I challenge you to either change up your verbiage when you're passing by someone, or if you do ask someone how they're feeling, to make sure you have the time to have a sit-down conversation and really listen and be engaged in that conversation. And next, we're going to ask you to stop. Essentially, stop what you're doing for a minute, take a breath, look at what your thoughts are, and acknowledge what they are and accept them and proceed with something that will support you in the moment. And that can be at any point. It can be before school, during lunch, during the drive home, in the shower, whenever. Yeah, so take a time. And you can do this with a friend, too. You don't have to do this on your own. If you're in the library and you and your friend are getting frustrated, I talk about the library a lot because I'm here quite a bit, but <laughs> if you're somewhere with a friend and you're like getting frustrated, just I challenge you to just stop. Stop what you're doing observe your thoughts, and then proceed in a healthy manner. So all of the resources that we were referencing or some of the facts that we were talking about will be mentioned within the resource portion of the episode. And with special thanks to uh, several of the different groups, including NAMI, the National Association for Mental Illness, and wanting to just kind of focusing on the fact that all of these are publicly available. And just to reiterate that some of those sources for help that are available are also going to be listed below and if you want to go back and just listen to them again just keep well everybody yeah you got this we believe in you you're doing great thank you for your time everybody bye bye thank you for listening to the mind mental health podcast be sure to check out the episode notes for some resources we recommend. If you are out there and you are feeling stuck or feeling alone, you are not alone in this. Seeking help for your mental health is an important way of taking control of your life. And remember, it's okay not to be okay. Before we go, show some love by sharing this podcast with a friend and rating on whatever platform you may be using. We look forward to sharing new content with you every second and fourth Wednesday of the month. Thanks again for listening.